Welcome to the City Collective Podcast. We believe we are better together and exist to create space for everyone to discover life in Jesus. We hope that you encounter the heart of God and are challenged and inspired in your relationship with Christ. As I said, happy Thanksgiving on this beautiful fall. It is fall, I guess. It's been warm enough. It feels like summer's a little bit prolonged, which which, uh, I hope that you're enjoying just as much as we are. But great to see your faces on this Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, it's, it's kind of felt like there's been a long weekend every, every weekend since the beginning of September. Uh, but I think this is the last one for a little bit. But I, I hope that tomorrow there's plans for, for something that is involving rest and connection with family uh, or people that you love. Wherever it is, I, I hope that it's just a wonderful weekend of refreshment for you. If this is your first time here at City Collective, like I said, uh, my name is Jason, and our our hope is that wherever you find yourself on your journey of faith, Christian, non-Christian, atheist, agnostic, wherever it is that you find yourself, that this is a safe place for you, um, that you can explore the conversations of of faith and of of community and and of Jesus, and and this is something that we believe wholeheartedly needs to be a, a priority for us, that this is part of our expression of faith to have a safe space to have these conversations. This morning, we're, we're in the gospel according to Matthew. Last week, we finished chapter 4, and we were considering the ministry of Jesus, looking in the way that he went to people. He was teaching and proclaiming, and everywhere he went, healing went before him. And then we, could, we were considering the idea of the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God had come near, and it was an illustration of Jesus coming near to us. And what does the kingdom of God look like? It looks like the ministry of Jesus. It's healing everywhere he goes. It's it's healing of of a physical nature, of of a relational nature, of an emotional nature. We all desire healing, and this is what the kingdom of God brings to us. And it was was very intentionally a a setup in chapter 4, leading into what we find in chapters 5, 6, and seven, as we come up to what is the greatest sermon ever told, uh, and it's not the sermon this morning, it is the sermon that Jesus, uh, he, he preached all those years ago. It was the Sermon on the Mount. We, we spent intentional time talking about the kingdom of God, and it's, even in the Gospel of Matthew, it's, it's referenced 55 times throughout the ministry of Jesus, and we get to this place on the Sermon on the Mount, and, and John Mark Homer, he calls the Sermon on the Mount Jesus' manifesto for a whole new way of being human in the inbreaking reality of the kingdom of God. We'll stick with Sermon on the Mount as our title, but that is, that is a, a summary in many ways of what is actually taking place when Jesus is communicating to his disciples couple things to take note of right away. Uh, This is a compilation of ideas. It's unlikely that Jesus communicated every little piece that we are going to see in the Sermon on the Mount at one time, but it was ideas communicated to his disciples on this mountainside, perhaps over a period of time. There's a lot of different things that we're going to go over over the course of what's going to be not even just the remainder of this year, but it's going to extend into next year as well. But at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the first thing that Jesus decides to begin with is what is famously known as the Beatitudes. And these Beatitudes, perhaps you've come across them, perhaps you've heard them said before, they're sometimes characterized as quaint sayings or from another time for another people, but Jesus begins with these ideas for a particular reason. 
It's, it's a place for, for us to begin if we're going to be disciples of Jesus. So we're going to take it slow through this passage. But each week that we're in one of the Beatitudes or two of the Beatitudes, uh, we're going to read the passage as a whole. So Matthew 5, verses 1 to 12, I would invite you to join me in reading on the screen. It says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Mountainside is an important word right off the bat. In the Gospel of Matthew, there's a lot of things that happen on mountainsides. Uh, and Jesus communicating to his disciples in this moment on the mountainside is a call to not just what's taking place, but to also what was. If you remember, perhaps in the story of Israel, that when Moses goes and he wants to get instructions from God, he goes to Mount Sinai, and he goes up to Mount Sinai, and he comes down with the law. And in this moment, what Jesus is doing is when he's going up to the mountainside with his disciples, he didn't go alone. He invites the people to come with him. And the thing that they discover is, is the way of the new kingdom, of the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of man. And Jesus, from the very beginning, from the very first verse of this sermon, is already subverting our imagination of what it looks like to be fully human. So mountainside, already a key word. So it says, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecute the prophets who were before you. So if you've ever come across this passage, like I said, maybe you've heard it in church before or you've just read it yourself, I think we can tend to dismiss this passage and these sayings as these quaint, out-of-touch ideas that don't really apply to now. And whatever your exposure to them, I want to set a, a clear baseline of what the Beatitudes actually are. The Beatitudes are a description of how God's kingdom is entering the world and transforming it. Uh, even the, out of the definition from, from Britannica, it describes the Beatitudes as the blessedness of those who have certain qualities or experiences peculiar to those belonging to the kingdom of God. I love that, peculiar to those belonging to the kingdom of God. The Beatitudes are a picture of what it looks like to live on earth under his rule and reign. It's like God's people bringing the currency of heaven on earth and spending it to enrich the lives of everybody around. Now, all these things are wonderful, and they, they sound great. But we all know that it's easier said than done. We may be reading the Beatitudes of Jesus, but... I would say, if we're, if we're honest this morning, that when you read it, it's not really appealing on first glance. To be poor in spirit, to mourn, 
It's not really the ways that we want to set our lives up, even if there is a promise of blessedness. It does not seem particularly appealing. You see, there's monikers that might exist within this moment of, of the Beatitudes, but there's also ideas which, which exist within our everyday culture. I think there's secular Beatitudes that we see all the time, and they're hoping for a similar, similar outcome. If Jesus is hoping for blessedness for his people, the secular Beatitudes that we see every day all around us, they're hoping for something similar, and maybe it's articulated more as just the, the good life. Uh, a, a brief Google search shows pretty quickly what are the monikers and sayings and ideas that people are kind of latching onto. And sometimes they're a little ridiculous. So these are real sayings that people are like, this is my, this is my statement of my life. It is, activate extreme self-confidence. Push fear away times 1,000. Live your truth. Check your privilege. Level up. <laughs> we have these these sloganized beatitudes that we believe lead to a good life. And, and they seem ridiculous, but let's be really honest here. We hear them all the time. Maybe not with the same exact language, but a version of it that would seem to indicate that the best way for me to have a good life is if I elevate myself, my self-will, and all that I do to the highest priority, and if I do so, the good life will follow. It's that, it's that grind culture. It's that mentality that if I work just hard enough and I focus purely on myself, all good things will follow. I will find happiness. Maybe the most moving movie from uh, Will Smith, The Pursuit of Happiness, is, is all about someone overcoming impossible odds to find financial success for their family. And that's a pretty good summary, I think, of what we often articulate as the good life. That I'm going to push past what's around me so that I can find material success in the here and now. And then I will actually find happiness. Think of all the things we do in pursuit of happiness. What we give up, what we think it's worth, our time, our money, our relationships. If we believe that happiness is the outcome, there is very little that it seems we won't do. Because we, we place ourselves in a certain mind that would have us believe that the pursuit of happiness, the elevation of self, my priorities is the utmost and highest calling. And for the people that were listening to Jesus in this moment, to the, the disciples and, and the, the crowd that followed him up onto this mountainside, I want you to understand that this is important for us to find a relation to them. They are experiencing a similar approach. They are desiring much of what we desire today, to be happy. This is an economically impoverished people. Socially outcast. Politically subjugated. They desire happiness. They desire something new, and they're coming up onto this hill with the one who is doing the impossible all around us that's declaring the kingdom has come, and they're hoping they're going to hear something that's going to lead to a life that is better than what they're in right now. We have all been there. 
So just as much as Jesus is speaking to them in their current situation, with that mindset and with that goal, Jesus is speaking to us. When we have that desire and that longing for something to be better than it is. I think on this Thanksgiving weekend, it seems appropriate to talk about this because we would always connect that which we're thankful for with a sense of happiness that it would bring. I'm, I'm thankful for, for my baby girl because of the joy she brings me with her little smiles. I'm, I'm thankful for that because of the happiness associated with it. It's a simple concept, but it's the way in which that we often categorize our thankfulness or feel a sense that we can be thankful. The presentation of the kingdom of God and the teachings of Jesus begins with the Beatitudes, and it's meant to subvert our perspectives and interpretations of the world. So today we're going to look at three questions. What does it mean to be blessed? What does Jesus mean by being poor in spirit? And how does that really make us a blessed people? Now, these Beatitudes are a list of blessings, and Jesus starts off this sermon by using that word over and over and over again, to be blessed, to be blessed, to be blessed. And perhaps one of the translations that you've read previously used a different word because, in fact, it comes from this Greek word makarios. Everyone say makarios. This Greek word doesn't really have an adequate translation to English. It's a tough jump, to be, to be honest. And this is an important distinction to make because we are going to analyze each of these Beatitudes over the course of the next, next month or so. And each of them come with this word, blessed. We need to know what's actually being said here. Because what is your default definition of being blessed? What do you actually think it is? To, to get what you want, to achieve what you were hoping for or, or striving towards. I think that we would often actually articulate it as something similar to what it would look like within a Hebrew population because the word blessed is in a lot of the Hebrew texts, especially in the Old Testament, and the language that it would often be defined as is divine favor from God, if I'm blessed, divine favor from God. But this word makarios is not that same word. It means something actually a little different. Some translators actually simply move it over towards meaning fortunate. Others would say that they should throw you a party. Others would say congratulations, as in, you just won the lottery. Makarios, congratulations. This is a great thing. Fortunate are you. Blessed are you. Congratulations to you, and then some scholars would translate it as happy are you. And there's that idea again. The problem that we run into, into in our world is it's a really sanitized superficiality that exists within the world, in, with the word in our culture. So just knowing this much, what does it immediately tell us? It tells us that this list that we see from Jesus is not a list of virtues or characteristics similar to what you might find with the fruits of the Spirit out of Galatians from Paul. It is 
also, it's not, it's not a complicated puzzle for us to unlock to suddenly get into the kingdom of God. This is not what Jesus is presenting. Listeners at the time, they would have wondered the same thing as us. Like, what is Jesus actually trying to tell me right here? Being poor in spirit, mourning, to suffer. These, these don't sound particularly appealing, but yet this is what he's being saying to them from the very beginning, and he's articulating it in a summary for them to grab hold of and understand they're being invited into. This is a picture that's being painted for a group of people, and he's saying, congratulations, you who are poor in spirit. Let's recognize the group of people that would have been hearing Jesus speak at this moment. These are the poorest of the poor, likely following Jesus in this moment, hoping to receive something good. Like I said, economically impoverished would have been the norm throughout the region. Politically subjugated, they would have had no real authority or power, and they would have been craving for something of the sort. And yet Jesus is saying, all the things that you are, you're poor, congratulations. Let's, let's not overanalyze it also. It says poor in spirit. The poor matters as well. There is a, an element of, of the economic status of the individuals hearing what Jesus is communicating that is meant to connect with them. This isn't a call to say that, that having wealth is bad. What it is saying, though, is that Jesus articulates it over and over again. Wealth is a difficult way to have faith, that it can be something that diminishes and distracts, but it's not meant to actually point us to economic success or economic failure being the manner in which we enter the kingdom of God. Poor in spirit, those who mourn the meek, and it keeps going. So there's a couple of things contextually that I want you to recognize right away before we continue on, and we're going to look specifically at what it means to be poor in spirit. First of all, Jesus is using a speech pattern within his communication to show a contrast between the kingdom at hand and the upside-down kingdom. Uh, Tim Mackey, he talks about it in far more detail, and he talks about this idea of there was a rabbi at the time that had his own list of what it meant to be blessed, and all of those items would have been known to the listeners at the time. This is really cool to always be aware of, that just as we say every week, Jesus wants to meet you where you're at. Jesus wants to communicate in a way that you're going to hear and receive and respond. This was the way that Jesus was communicating to those individuals on that mountainside. They were coming with the preset idea of what it meant to be blessed based upon the teachers that they'd come across. And Jesus right away was not just saying something different. He was saying it in a way that they had experienced previously so to contrast immediately, to divert it immediately, to say that this was a way in which you were shown, let me show you a new way. It was a similar speech pattern that was used of blessed are blank, and then he communicated it. Second, this was a, a passionate community eagerly waiting the announcements of the king. We talked about this. This was Jesus declaring the kingdom of God is near. The king has come. And the people were expecting, if I'm going to go up on this mountainside, I'm going to find out all about this king. 
and this so-called kingdom that he wants me to participate in, this moment that's taking place, it's loaded with expectation. And it's loaded with this desire to, that's going to give birth to a movement. The people, they want to hear something. Have you ever had that expectation when you come before God? That you say, I'm going to, I'm going to pray to you this time. I want you to speak to me this expectation and this hope that's rising up within you and you're hoping that you might hear something that's going to lead you to take action, make a decision, move forward. These are what the people are experiencing on the mountainside. They are pregnant with expectation. And Jesus communicates to the sick, to the broken, to the downtrodden and the unimportant and he says, you are blessed. Why? Because Jesus has brought the kingdom to them. And Jesus, he defies every expectation that comes his way. His words are revolutionary and they're shifting their image of what the kingdom of God is because the Beatitudes are less attributes to be attained, but they're more people groups to be valued. Here's the thing when it comes to any sort of transformation. If you do not believe that the people group or the type of person that Jesus is communicating is actually of any value, you're not going to pursue that train or that path or that line of thinking. Even if it's a nice idea, even if Jesus communicates it really well, even if there's a ton of charisma around it, if you don't believe that where it's going is actually of value, you're not going to pursue that path. So with saying all of that, our charismatic, bold Messiah, the very first thing that he says to a people pregnant with expectation that he is hoping that will lead them to an action that is reflective of who he is, the very first thing that he says to them is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Nobody would have anticipated that the Messiah announcing the rule and reign of God would have started with this starting point. Poor in spirit. Because we don't want to be poor anything. We don't want to be poor economically. And we sure don't want anyone's pity or sympathy. Poor you. The association of the word poor with us is immediately going to create some cringe, some distaste, maybe some anger, some frustration. You don't want to have poor on your name at all. But yet Jesus is saying, poor in spirit, blessed are they, for they shall have the kingdom. It's an interesting place to start. Poor in spirit was a call to complete surrender and dependence in order to receive the fullness and flourishing life that was offered. Blessed are those who realize they have nothing within themselves to earn the kingdom of God given to them. Blessed are those who realize they have nothing within themselves to earn the kingdom of God that is given to them. What is actually taking place at the foundation of this sermon is Jesus is trying to soften hearts to be able to receive. 
Jesus is denouncing pride and making a call to humility. The type of person that Jesus is describing here humbly walks with God, trusting in God despite their social and economic status. The self-dependence is on the opposite path of walking with God, but the surrendered, dependent follower of Jesus finds God beside them. So this is a denouncement of pride. This is a call to humility. And I think all of us can say really honestly, or maybe you're not going to be honest this morning, uh, humility is hard. Humility is really difficult. Especially in our modern era where our phones are at our fingertips, where screens are all around us, where we're constantly evaluating our self-worth through image, through, through appearance, through relationship, through, through status of, of, of how well-liked we are on different platforms. The elevation of all those characteristics makes humility more difficult than ever. There are studies being done that are indicating that even the manner in which we are looking at our phones constantly is making ourselves so self-focused that we cannot see beyond ourselves even when we want to. Humility is, is, is leading us to a place that's completely different than the world is designing us to be. The manner in which we are being <laughs> formed by culture around us is not humble. In fact, study after study is showing that we are developing a culture of narcissists. People who are so focused on themselves above all things that maybe they know the right things to say because we're politically correct, but the heart condition of our, of our communities and of our, our culture and of our society actually does anything for ourself at whatever it costs no matter who the cost is. And it's happening subtly, continuously, over and over. And we're not the first to discover this because Jesus is talking about this to a group of people 2,000 years ago, and he's saying your pride has to be put down. you got to start with, from a place of humility if you are going to receive anything that I so desperately want to give you. Humility is hard. Why? Because humility actually requires dependence outside of yourself. And nobody wants to be at that point. Everybody wants what? Financial independence. We want to have security that we've discovered for ourselves. We want relational independence. We want to feel like I've done it on my own. I'm a self-made man or woman. I, I, I am that guy. We want to be able to tell that story. We want to be able to, to communicate that about ourselves, And all of those pieces come at the cost of any sense of humility because we have made that our ultimate goal in life. So then as a result, instead of being poor in spirit, we become what, what John Tyson, he, he calls, we become middle-class spirits. And let's be honest, this one might be the most prideful spirit. Because we, we look at those who have everything and we think to ourselves, I'm not as bad as them. And, and the middle class spirit actually elevates the idea of the grind. I'm going to make it for myself. 
I'm going to work extra hard, and I'm a self-made man or woman. Uh, Everything that I have received, I have gotten on my own. And that middle-class spirit invades our hearts. And then if we get to that elite spirit, it gets to the point where we're not even worried about God because we become our own God. And again and again, whether it's the middle class, whether it's the elite spirit, you'll notice at the root of it is what? It's pride. It's funny, we, we, we often think about wealth being a, a difficult way for us to navigate our faith. But the Bible doesn't say that God opposes the rich. It says that God opposes the proud. James 4, 6 says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I'm going to read a quote from an individual by the name of Jeff Cook, and it says this. It says, Pride is rebellion against God because it attributes to oneself the honor and glory due to God alone. Pride, then, is not possessing extraordinary talents, viewing my skills highly, or even showcasing my gifts for the benefits of others. Pride instead instead spurs me to view myself as the only one in the world who matters. I may have a lowly job, no money, no friends, yet still meditate continually on myself as the one whose thoughts and feelings matter more than anyone else's. Pride is not thinking too much of myself. Pride is thinking of myself far too much. Do you see what I'm saying? The danger of of our phones and the way that we articulate things in our culture and build relationships, we have so much that is just thinking about ourselves. St. Augustine, he says, This pride makes the soul desert the God to whom it should cling to as the source of life and to imagine itself as the source of its own life. I've heard that pride is is the mother of all sin because it gives birth to every other sin. So with with all this language of what pride is kind of presented before us, let's Consider it with the idea of the kingdom of God that we've discussed at length. Because pride is the enemy of the kingdom of God. You cannot enter the kingdom of God when you're trying to be the king of the kingdom itself. Have you ever had someone uh, like join something that you're leading? Uh, I, I love talking about group projects because I think group projects are the worst. But on the spectrum of group projects, this is on one side of it. Someone who joins the the project and you've been leading and they're like, I'm just going to help. Before you know it, they're like saying some things in the background. They're trying to push their ideas onto it. And before you know it, you're like, I just want to get this person out of here. Kind of like that. We say, I want to be part of the kingdom of God. But the only kingdom that we're used to being in is the one where we're in charge. And God invites us and he says to be poor in spirit. And we're like, you know what? Being rich in spirit was really nice at moments in my last kingdom. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to roll with that. 
And it becomes really difficult to actually submit any of ourselves because the only thing that we're used to is to be the king of the kingdoms that we've built for ourselves. Think of it this way. When we lack humility and when we lack humility, pride rules our lives. We rule our kingdoms. And to try and enter the kingdom of God is like, it's like attacking a country, approaching the gates of the capital, and saying out loud, let me in, I'm the real king. That's what pride is when it comes up against the kingdom of God. And let's be honest, no good king would allow such an intrusion. No wonder it says that God is opposed to the proud. Our kingdom of self only knows how to attack the kingdom of God when we're actually invited to participate in it. Now let's remember, this is the very first thing that Jesus presents. Therefore, this is a posture that he recognizes we need to have. We need to be humble. We need to have humility. You can say humility along the lines of poverty in spirit. So humility means you embrace daily dependence on God for all that you need. And then from there, hopefully humility begins to flow from your life because we attribute the successes, the victories, the joys of our lives to the one whom we've chosen to be dependent on. And here's the thing that I've recognized for myself. Humility is so much easier when I'm genuine. When, when the thoughts of my mind actually match the actions from my heart. Because here's the thing. We are a culture that is so good at faking being humble. We know the words. We know the actions. But the real question often comes down to, what does your heart say? Because I have found for myself, when I am doing the actions and doing the words and my heart is not in line with it, it is an exhausting set of actions and words to employ on a consistent basis. And then we start to justify our actions in the future. Well, I tried really hard. I was really trying to be humble that one time. And you know what? I was exhausted the next day. I needed three naps to get over how humble I was. And so I'm not going to do that again next, next time because my humility is taking too much out of me. If humility is exhausting, then pride is in your heart. If humility is freeing, if it's empowering, if it's life-giving, then you have found dependence in the right source. But you have to ask yourself some real questions this morning because if we're going to go on this journey of what it means to be in the kingdom of God, then we need to start from a posture of humility. It has to begin there. Because the thing is, pride is poisonous and it gets into everything. And very rarely are we able to actually self-identify pride in our lives, ironically because of our pridefulness. So consider some of these. Awareness is a necessary element in any form of repentance. So consider some of these for yourself. Pride might be feeling like you're too good to talk to someone. It might be believing that you would always do it better. It might be waiting for the conversation to somehow highlight something that you've done. It might be feeling like a good report from someone else somehow 
sabotages your worth. Or vice versa, you're waiting for a bad report from someone to elevate your worth. Hearing someone else's story and waiting for them to mention you. And not confessing sin or mistake unless you're backed into a corner and confronted. I know I went through this list and I felt convicted. There are so many ways in which pride finds its way into our lives. And I'm not saying every single one is what you're experiencing right now, but I think we all experience one or the other. Because what is pride? Pride is stubborn. Pride looks down on others. Pride, it doesn't listen well. Pride is actually a bad learner because it believes that it knows everything worth knowing. Pride, it doesn't want to admit wrong because of how they might look. Pride, it even defines humility based upon the issues of others. What I mean by this is poor in spirit isn't meant to be a relative term, but we often treat it as such. I am poor in spirit because look at Johnny Hockey next door that went and did his own thing. Uh, poor in spirit is not a relative term because when we start to consider it based upon others around us, then it just simply becomes another form of what? Pride. Pride is insecure. Pride finds it hard to celebrate others' successes. And on this Thanksgiving weekend, pride makes real gratitude an impossibility because it tells the lie that I'm the main reason for anything that is good. Thankfulness becomes real hard when that's the case. C.S. Lewis, he says, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. I think this is a heavy one because it's, it's everyone. Because pride is, is poisonous and it gets into everything. Pride makes me the king of my own kingdom. And here's the thing. Pride, it keeps my hands full. I want you to think of it this way. When, when Christ is inviting you into the kingdom of God, he's got a bounty of goodness that he wants you to experience and receive. And he's saying, extend your hands to receive. But what pride does is it's done the exact same thing. It wants to fill those same hands. And when I extend my hands, but I have pride in my heart, what happens is my hands are already full and I'm unable to receive the goodness of the kingdom that... Christ desires for us. No wonder he starts with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, because your hands are empty to receive all that I have for you. He isn't just outlining qualities of kingdom people. He's, he's outlining qualities of himself, of who Jesus is. My challenge to you this morning is can we create some space in our lives to actually humble ourselves and consider where pride has taken root? Can, can we say, Lord, I want you back at the center of my life. I want to be dependent on you. I want you to be glorified. I want you to be lifted up. 
I've grown exhausted trying to build it based upon myself. I want to find rest in you. If you feel like pride exists or that humility is a challenge, with a heart of repentance, remember, repentance is turning around. Let's ask for God to reveal what is holding on to you. May we be poor in spirit, not wanting our kingdom but yours. Let me end with this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. With everything we've talked about, perhaps it's best said like this. Congratulations. Blessed and happy are those who live humbly and open-handed for the kingdom of heaven is breaking into your life. You want to know if you're participating in the kingdom? Humility is present. You want to discover what peace is like for maybe the first time in a long time? Let's start with some humility so we have open hands to receive. The Spirit of God so desperately wants to meet you where you're at. Often the greatest challenge we face is are we able to actually receive it? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just give you thanks that your kingdom has come. That is here in the now. And the invitation before us this morning is, can we receive the kingdom? Can we receive you? And can we begin to live like you and look like you and talk like you? And thank you that the first place that you lead us towards is what you actually say about yourself. To have a humble heart. For the lists of pride that probably poked at us a little bit this morning, I pray that we would actually just find you in the midst of it. Where pride might exist, I pray that you would just overwhelm it with this invitation of dependence that we can come to you. For those in the room that are holding on tightly to what they do and what they have and their identity and self and all those different ways in which we are being formed by the culture around us, I just pray this morning that you would begin to shape our minds to actually believe that the people that you've called us to be, the people of poor in spirit, is worth going towards. That real change can start to happen. Transform us. We need more of you. Pride exists within each of our hearts. I pray against the poisonous nature of it that it would not seep into the areas of health that exist within our lives. That pride would be rooted out, that humility would exist, and that we would discover you in a new way in the midst of it all. Thank you that you don't just want to add to what where we're at, but you want to subvert it all for something that's so much better than we see in the time that we're in. Give us courage this morning to have an awareness that would lead us to repentance. Where pride might exist, 
let grace reign. Let freedom be found. And let our hope in you lead us forward. Your kingdom come, your will be done. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope it encouraged and blessed you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. To keep up with City Collective, make sure to check us out on Instagram and Facebook at City Collective Church. Have a great week.